they're already gone. Well, one of the questions we have for today is how we got here. Um, we've been sort of walking through the Gospel of Mark up until now, and we've been sort of looking at each of the scenes. And so we've been trying to see Mark as a story. And so we spent the first sort of first six Sundays of the new year walking uh, with Jesus just sort of around the Galilee region as he just sort of seems to move through the world without any command, demands or concerns on his life. And then we spent the, well, we're spending the next Sunday, six Sundays moving towards the resurrection and Easter. And so right at Mark chapter 8, Jesus begins to sort of move towards his death in Jerusalem. There's almost no mention from Jesus that he's going to be one who goes there and dies at that moment. And so he begins to sort of move towards that moment. And so one of the things we did last Sunday, if you weren't here, is we did Palm Sunday in way early. Um, and what I pointed out was is that Palm Sunday and doing that right before Easter sort of has this assumption that like you're going to be in church the next seven nights of the week to sort of get the story of what happens between Palm Sunday and what happens between the resurrection. But we don't live in that world where we all come to church all those seven days and hear the stories of the events that take place between when Jesus rises in Jerusalem until when he rises. And so we have this sort of weird climax where we go, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Jesus is here. The pastor uh, talks about the upside-down kingdom, maybe references what's coming ahead. But then we come back to church the next Sunday, and Jesus has risen from the dead. We miss cross, we miss trial, we miss the, the teachings that Jesus does in Jerusalem. It even becomes clearer sometimes why Jesus is killed, like in this parable here. When you walk around telling stories like this about the people in charge, you don't last a lot longer, and we miss all that, sort of. And so what we did was we decided we'll do Palm Sunday early, and then we'll live as if we're in Jerusalem anticipating Easter with Jesus. We'll follow those events forward to sort of see where the story goes and how it ends. And so last Sunday we did Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and Jesus arrived into Jerusalem. Now, just as a side note, Psalm 118 is the psalm that they quote that Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 is also the same psalm that Jesus quotes here. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's also the one that contains that great line, I will not die but live. But this, this parable has this way of sort of being in all three of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you're the early church's memory, this is an important parable that's getting passed around. There aren't a whole lot of scenes that are preserved in all three of those Gospels. That this is one should cause us to pause and to consider it deeply and, and more honestly. And it's, it's hard because it's, a, it's an odd parable. It starts off with that idea that God builds this man. I guess I should say it the way the parable says it. This man builds a vineyard, right? And this man decides to build a vineyard. And so that's just, we think that's the nature of Jesus' parables. They're always weird, right? But I think the more that we sort of live with the full Bible, we begin to see different things about this. And so that's the reading that Brian read for this. It said that I, I will tell of my beloved who built a vineyard for his people from the book of Isaiah. And the, the imagery is very similar. Is, is God builds this vineyard and he puts a watchtower in it. He puts a wine press and it makes bad grapes is how that story sort of ends in the book of Isaiah, that the grapes just aren't there, right? 
So when Jesus launches into the story in Jerusalem, and this is right after they've been questioning, what is Jesus' authority to be doing these things? There's a great scene right before this that we aren't going to preach on, but he, he says something back to them, and they're just like stumped. And so Jesus, while he has them stunned, kind of like launches into another parable before they get back on their feet. And he tells us this parable about this vineyard. Now, if you're one of the religious leaders, you know this story to some degree. And it's a story about God's love for his people, Israel. It's a story about the way that God wants to provide for his people, and so he sets them up as a vineyard. And what happens in the pattern of these things in Isaiah is that the vineyard just doesn't produce the fruit. And in Isaiah 5-7, it says that the fruit that God was looking for was justice and righteousness. That what they didn't make in the end was this justice and righteousness that God was waiting for from this vineyard. And it's a story about the ways in which the people don't grow up into that. But what Jesus changes when he tells them this story in, in this parable is he says that there are people who have been put in charge of that. That the master goes away and he leaves some tenant farmers in charge. This is, this is common in that world to sort of, for the master to be in another spot and then tenant farmers would take care of the land and offer some, some of that fruit back as sort of a tax. As a way. So, so Jesus already taken this common parable about God's love for his people and changed it a bit. And so what he says is that these tenant farmers, um, they begin, they, the master finally sends some servants someday to collect that tax, right? And what happens is they arrive and the tenant farmers just beat the first guy up. They don't want anything to do with him. And what happens is that the violence sort of escalates. Is he sends one and another, and they just beat him up, and then they kill one guy, and then they beat up another guy. And then the one guy they wound in the head, which, which most likely John the Baptist plays a bigger role sort of in the Gospel of Mark than any of the other Gospels. And he's been beheaded at this point. So the, there's this other one who comes, and they wound in the head. And finally, the master is sort of, it seems like, almost out of servants, but there's one more. Now, if you're one of these religious leaders at this time and in this place, you would clearly see what Jesus is saying is that God keeps sending prophets. God keeps sending people to try and restore Israel. God keeps sending more and more people. And by the time of of this um, moment in Jewish history, people have kind of gotten the self-awareness that, yes, God sends prophets. We don't listen. We beat them up. We send them off. We save their stories. Over time, we begin to see that they were correct, and then we save those stories and cherish them so that we don't go that way again. Now, this, this should sound a lot like the general human story, right? Somebody warns me about what I should do. It starts as, as a parent. Somebody warns me about what I should do. I don't listen. I find out that they were probably right that, you know, when you touch a stove, it will burn your hand. Um, and then I save that story in my mind so that I don't go into that place again. And so what Jesus has done is sort of, if you're these religious leaders, has said, okay, God has set up Israel as this vineyard. And instead of what we know in Isaiah is that just doesn't produce because it's, it's sort of a struggling land, he set sort of tenant farmers, which are the religious leaders. And what happens is, is that you guys are the ones who beat up and kill the prophets when they come. 
At the time, they're probably thinking of Jesus more as a prophet, too. He's sort of saying that, like, of course, when it gets to me, you're going to beat me up, too. Now, there is a challenge at this one, is that, is that there is still some idea after this arrival in Jerusalem that Jesus and his people are violent militants, right? It's not, it's, it's not just that they're going like, okay, so we'll beat you up too. We'll save your stories to know that we went the wrong way. Chance we'll take because Rome will crush us if there's a violent uprising, right? Um, and that's sort of the world this, this is in. Is it's a tense world. So if there is a violent uprising, they know, the Jewish leaders, that everything is gone that they've worked on. That this is sort of what what they might be thinking is that this is one who's going to come to say that the point of this parable is that I'm going to actually crush you. I'm going to be the one who says, enough with the tenant farmers, you're dead. Which is kind of the way it ends, but in a different way. And so what happens is it goes on from here, and and there's this this point where it says finally that the, the father or the, the master of the vineyard, decides to send his beloved son. Now, anybody hearing this in the first century is like, you've got to be kidding me. There is no way after 10 servants, or as many servants have been sent, have been beat up and killed, that this guy is delusional enough that he'll send his son and think the result will come out even better. There's just no way that's going to happen. But this farmer actually thinks to himself, if I send my son, surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll listen to him. Surely this will actually begin. And, and I think it's important to remember that I think Jesus is telling this parable with the foresight of what's going to happen. He's not offering them a warning. Like, hey, if you guys don't kill me, then, then all this, the rest of the parable cuts off right here. What the track is that he's going on has already been set. But what he is alluding to is that this beloved son is sent in a way to sort of restore, to sort of bring back order, almost sent out of an act of love. Surely they'll respect my son. So what happens is, is, that, is that the son arrives, and they, the, there's this sort of level of delusion that exists in these tenant farmers. Although, depending on what, we don't know a lot about what would actually happen in this situation in the first world, is they begin to tell themselves that if we kill him, then the inheritance is ours. Now, there's one way to interpret that, that, the, that when the, they see the son coming, they actually think the master's dead. And the son has come to say, okay, well, my father was patient with you, enough of this business, right? So they might be thinking, well, if the the master is dead and the son is coming, then, hey, if we kill him, the land will become ours, right? In a Jewish law, there's, there's sort of, what do we say about property? That property is, possession is nine-tenths of the law, that's kind of the way that the Jewish law seems to operate at this time. These tenant farmers have been here for a while, at least a couple harvest seasons for the servants to be coming, and so they kind of have possession. They have nine-tenths of it at the moment. So if they can wipe out the lineage, they think that this might be theirs. Why they assume the master's dead is weird, and if that would actually happen, it's hard to say, but they, they seem to have fed on, on sort of beating up these people long enough that they see the son coming, and what they do is they kill him, and then they set him outside the vineyard. Should remind us of the ways in which Jesus is crucified outside the city and outside the camp. But what it even seems to say in the story is that even when they kill them, they don't even give him a proper burial. 
They sort of chuck his body outside the city. And so this is the way that the tenant farmers have sort of lived this way. And so Jesus asked this question, which they actually answer in Matthew, but it's, it's sort of rhetorical here. But they say, what will the owner of the vineyard do, he asked them. Here Jesus answers himself. He will say, he will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyards to others. What starts in a love story has turned pretty violent pretty fast. This love story of what God has done for them. And what it says here is that he will come and he will kill. And and it's important to remember that he's talking to religious leader. He's not going to kill everybody in Israel. He'll kill the leaders and give it to people who can guard it, can live with these secrets. And and there's there's this way in which if you were a first century listener of Mark's gospel, especially after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you would say that this church, this body, is a new temple built with living stones. And we're the ones who are the inheritors of this promise. This promise that steps back deep into Israel's history, goes into Psalm 118, and builds us up that we're inheritors of the promise. I do think it's always interesting for us as churches to think of ourselves as, as what is a temple built with living stones and this relationship to the temple in the Old Testament of sort of the place where life flows out and the healing for the nations and all these good things. It's sort of the center of the world. That's the church. Now, that's partially how I got into this sort of pastoring stuff as I believed that. But doesn't it still seem nuts sometimes? I mean, that, that the church on, on this corner or the church on any other corner in this town or church on any other corner in the world is the place where God is going to be building a living temple that's going to restore the world. That God sort of has moved on from this location, physical temple in Jerusalem that was almost easier. We all knew where it was and we could all come there and offer our sacrifices and be received. And what he's done is dispersed us into this community that's on every country and every part of the world. And it's gathered with great <laughs> and not great people. And, and what happens there is that this is the temple that God is building from living stones to restore his creation. Sometimes I think that was a mistake if you really think through it. But this is what God has done for us. This is how God has transformed this world. And Jesus says, Have you not read the pastor that the stone the passage that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus asked them, Are they not familiar with the truth that what is rejected is actually what the repair is? that this becomes the cornerstone. Now, I'm not in construction, so I can't imagine the stone is this big. Um, but if you think about this, that this in this world, you would build more like almost like a bricklayer, right? And you would build and put stones on top of each other, and it would, it would eventually grow up and, and get big enough, and then you would want a stone for the top, right? What, what this parable is kind of saying is that this stone, that even in the process of building, you just kind of like chucked off to the side. It's like, well, this stone, this is not going to work for anything. The builders, in their wisdom, they look at the stone and they go, nope, this one, this stone is rejected. We're not going to use this stone for anything. And what happens in this rejection is God takes the rejected stone 
the stone that in our expertise as builders, the stone in which the ways that we think through the world is bent to work and uses it to hold the whole thing up or to put on the top, to seal it off. That God has this pattern of taking that which has been rejected and then bringing it to the highest point. This is not small news. This is, this is big news that God would take the rejected things and then restore them to some other place. And this psalm proclaims that for us. And this is the psalm that Jesus has used to sort of, sort of say that this is what's going to happen with me, is that I will be the rejected one who's raised up to the highest place. And so that's, in some sense, what this parable is about. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they go, he's obviously talking about us. And they reaffirm to themselves, which has started in chapter 2, that this one must die, that this one must be crucified. And so that's, that's the way I think that we can think of the parable in context. But I do think there's another way to think of this parable, which is that this is the story of the whole thing. This is sort of the gospel proclaimed for us in a parable that contains all of the biblical witness. That God, in the beginning, has taken humanity and placed them in a garden, has placed them in a vineyard, and that we didn't tend it well. You could take Isaiah and you could say that bad fruit grow up. You can take this passage and say that when God came by, we were like, no thanks, and we killed his people. You can take that even us with the prophets, we would stone and kill them and cast them out. That this is the story of ourselves in a lot of ways, the story of what happens to all of humanity. We move from this beautiful garden into this God that wants to visit and commune with us to, to sort of, and we sort of reject that. And as the warnings come, the warnings come not only in prophets, but also in our own lives. The warnings come, we begin to reject those warnings again and again. And in a phrase that I think sort of summarizes much of the gospel is that God sends his beloved son. Many are familiar with John 3.16, that, 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 that God uh, so loved the world that he gave his son. We often read that fast, but that God gives his son to this world that has been nothing but violent and turned against him over and over again. That God sort of gives out his son to this moment. And then what the, what the people say is, look, this one is coming. And the, and the Greek that's used there is almost identical to the Greek Old Testament, which they have at this time, of what they say about Joseph when he comes. If you're not familiar with this story in Genesis, Joseph is the youngest of the brothers, and he seems to be the favorite, and his brothers plot to kill him. Joseph is an innocent sufferer like Jesus. And so they plot to kill him, and they throw him into a pit. They don't actually kill him. And he ends up being the one who sort of restores everything. See, they know this story, too. They would recognize that play, that, that this is the one who, though we will try to kill him, he will actually be the one who's the key to our new survival. And when you read the Joseph story, there's this great phrase that, that Joseph says to his brothers when he forgives them. If you read this parable with that forgiveness in mind, too, it changes a little bit. But he says, what you intended for evil, I intended for good. 
There is no other more, I think, Old Testament gospel phrase that I love as much as that, is that what humanity, what people and their ability intend for evil, God will use to bring about good. Jesus, in his human ministry here on earth, actually uses that sentiment right before he's about to go to his crucifixion. It's almost like what you intend for evil here will actually be the way that healing comes. And so what happens is that God's Son comes among us, and when light and life are there, we're overwhelmed by it. The only thing we know how to do is put it out. Or if you think about the stone, is that we mainly as humans only know how to deal with things that are useful for us. When God's Son shows up on the scene and teaches us this whole new way of being, this countercultural way of existing in the world, we actually don't know what to do with that. And so we reject it. We reject the stone. We kill the Son. Crucify Jesus. The crowds listening to this parable and the crowds that welcomed him in, in, on Palm Sunday are, are these same crowds that seem to be fickle enough to turn on him by the time they shout, crucify him, crucify him. And so what happens is, is this parable is the story of this whole gospel. This, it sums up my life and my relation to God in this way too. And all this is encapsulated in just these 12 verses. God is too good for us when he comes near. We just can't handle it. The best thing we can do is load up the stones of our sins and extinguish that light. And so what happens next is that he brings up this psalm, which we've already talked about, but, but that rejected one becomes the cornerstone. Psalm which proclaims his love endures forever. Psalm which proclaims that I will not die but live. The psalm which proclaims this journey of one who's gone through much, and yet God has lifted them up. Becomes what we're supposed to hear from this. That in our best efforts to reject and to kill, to cast off God, to, to not listen to his prophets, to go through original sin, all that isn't conquered by God. I know it's, it's sometimes comforting to think our rejection can actually have some sort of effect. But with this psalm through Jesus, through Jesus' resurrection, what's proclaimed to us is that our rejection actually doesn't do much. Because what God has set in history and in motion through Jesus Christ is that this rejection of ours is going to be raised up to the cornerstone. There wasn't much we could do about it. That our movement towards rejection is actually like a non-thing. Because what God's about to do is much more powerful than that. So the good news goes much deeper and much beyond that. But to end, I want to end with a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And in this quote, there's, he mentions the three ways in which we sort of see Jesus. He says, In Christ we have faith in the incarnate, crucified, and risen God. In Christ we have faith in the incarnate, crucified, and risen God. And so he says, In the incarnation, we learn of God's love for his creation. In the giving of the Son by the Father in this parable, we learn of God's love for his creation.
He says, in the crucifixion, we learn of the judgment of God on all flesh. Murder of the Son and the return. In the crucifixion, we learn of the judgment of God upon all flesh. And in the resurrection, we learn of God's will for a new world. In this resurrection truth, in this rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone, we learn of God's will to build a new creation here on earth. God's mighty work of a new creation. And here's where we'll end, because I think he ends with this phrase, and I think it's so important, is incarnation and love, rejection, crucifixion, and judgment, and resurrection and new world. Bonhoeffer ends with this phrase. He said, there could be no greater error than to tear these three elements apart. It's easy in the Christian life to pick one of the three to major in. It's easy to set your foot on. Really a new creation person, I don't do judgment. I'm really somebody who sees all the things wrong with the world. I like the judgment. God is just love through and through. Let's skip the other two. There is no greater error in the Christian life than to attempt to separate what God has done for us in sending his son to be incarnate, that how the judgment of our rejection is revealed in the cross and how the resurrection begins the journey towards new creation in a new world. Let us pray. God, your son walks the road into Jerusalem. Walks the road into his death. And he takes this time to tell us this parable. A man planted a vineyard. God planted a place he loved on earth. He builds protection and provision there. And while he's rented it out, have not responded well and rejected the healing he's offered. And yet through your love, son, through your love, God, you offer your son to us. 